Hello and a warm welcome to episode three of Are We There Yet? The Project Edward 2022 podcast. My name's James Luckhurst. This week, we'll be discussing the role virtual reality can play in creating safer drivers and what impact it can have on behaviour change in a notoriously challenging group. Joining me are two distinguished and experienced guests, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves ahead of what promises to be a fascinating conversation on the potential of VR in a road safety environment. Hello, uh, my name is David Crundall. I'm a professor of psychology at Nottingham Trent University and I've been working in the field of traffic psychology for about 30 years and I've been very interested uh, over the last three or four years in using VR headsets to actually present uh, risky or hazardous situations uh, to drivers. My name is James Evans. I started First Car 20 years ago nearly when I was in sick form. Uh, we're now the magazine that everyone gets with their theory test and their driving test. Plus, we do a lot of other uh, young driver and vulnerable road user interventions with, with local authorities across the country. In 2015, uh, I produced the first, uh, the UK's first virtual reality road safety film, as far as I'm aware, with uh, Paul Spate at Leicestershire Fire and Rescue Service, and then sort of moved on to creating the Ice Hub, which um, allows anyone that uses VR in a community safety setting to, to, to share it and share best practice. Well, you're both very welcome. Let's look at young drivers first as a specific road user group. Apparently, research shows that they're generally clueless rather than careless because they fail to recognise and anticipate hazards, so they won't be ready to deal with them and mitigate the consequences. To what extent is this an accurate portrayal of most young drivers? We'll start with you, David Crundle. Well, I think... Um Oftentimes we think of young drivers as being thrill-seeking young yahoos, um, but that really isn't uh, true of the majority of young drivers. Certainly within the first six to 12 months of passing their test, they're going to not necessarily have that confidence of driving in all different scenarios. And we are still left then with a large group of young drivers who are at extreme risk of having a collision where it might not necessarily be their attitudes that, that are at fault and in many cases we find that there are skill gaps and these skill gaps can come down to some very very basic things such as knowledge of driving in certain situations that they've not had experience of previously um, but also knowing subtle things such as where to look in particular roadways um, that is compounded by the fact that they've not had great practice with driving on certain roadways uh, so for instance i mean going back now to the late 90s when we were testing people with eye trackers in an instrumented vehicle um, we noticed that uh, the young drivers uh, who had only just passed their test, you put them onto a very challenging bit of dual carriageway, the slip roads joining from the right and the left, uh, and we would see that experienced drivers would be scanning both lanes to the left and right, making good use of their mirrors, and being generally aware 
of where they were um, in that scenario and where all of the other vehicles around them uh, were. And remember, this is on real roads that we were doing this. And I was sat in the back as a young PhD researcher at the time, and nothing was more terrifying than when we had a young novice driver actually behind the wheel doing this, because I could see what they were looking at on a computer monitor in the back of the car. And for these younger drivers, they tended to stare straight ahead. There was very little of the movements to the left and the right that you would expect of their eyes, uh, as you would expect with the more experienced drivers. And we were wondering why this was, and there was two main reasons, and one of those reasons could be um, that they just don't know where to look. The other reason could be that, frankly, they're so overloaded uh, with, uh, with just the demands of trying to keep the car straight and thinking about the gear, thinking about the speed, that they don't want to look anywhere. They can't possibly look anywhere else and take in any more information because they've got to concentrate on just getting that car forward and staying straight in the line. Now, it turns out that probably both of those reasons are important. Uh, certainly, young drivers do feel overloaded and we do know that at points of cognitive overload, when you've got too much going on in the brain, we tend to shut out or restrict access to other information. Basically, the brain can't take it. We don't want to attend to other things. However, when we put young drivers into the laboratory and getting, got them to just watch these videos, um, these were different young drivers watching the same sort of videos of that drive. They still did the same thing. Now, they're not under cognitive demands at that point because they're not driving. So also there is an element there of not knowing where to look. In that situation, they just did not realize that actually looking in the lanes to the left and to the right and looking into the mirrors because they didn't use the mirrors quite as much either. That was vitally important in that particular scenario. And just going on that road didn't trigger this, this idea of this eye movement pattern that it would trigger uh, in more experienced drivers. Well, let me ask James Evans, what role, James, is there for virtual reality in making young or inexperienced drivers safer? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not an academic and everything David says, you know, resonates enormously. You know, you, people learn to drive invariably as quickly as they can. We're sort of post-pandemic backlog at the moment at the time of sort of recording this so there's you know quite a wait time for tests and you know we didn't have that 20 years ago so you know people now are perhaps being forced to learn a little bit longer than they would normally you know some of my friends and I were getting through in three four five months you know from from L plates to to test pass you know we didn't have to do a hazard perception test then uh, it was just the theory test and, and the driving test but um yeah I think that's that's the thing is they say you never really start learning until you get out on the road on your on your road and that's that's so true because you're not coming into these you know these scenarios ice perhaps if you learn in the summer you know it comes around to november and you're driving for the first time in in icy conditions or low sun and you haven't figured out you know as i have now with a you know a naff old sunglasses clip on 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 top of the on top of the windshield so i know i've always got sunglasses there i mean these these are things you develop over time uh, and if you're not exposed to these sort of near miss scenarios or kind of high risk uh, scenarios where you really sort of think, oh, goodness me, I'm on the edge of, of, of my capabilities. Um, because we all we all did in those days. I mean, I've got friends that are a nuclear physicist now and doctors now that engaged in some of the most scary driving I think I've, I've ever seen. Not bad people, very intelligent, you know, but just had that sort of frontal lobe development thing that we all know about now and, um, you know, and, 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 and took risks and 
and made mistakes. But I guess on paper, at that point, the point of going through, you know, the, the learning to drive process, we should be, you know, we shouldn't be clueless. We should be as up on the um, the rules and the regulations and the needs and and everything as we're ever as we're ever going to be potentially. Um, but you, you're right. Fortunately, now there's a lot of academia and a lot of data that helps us really understand you know, where the, where the holes are. So hopefully we can fill those with, with education and, and interventions and hopefully VR will provide a good tool uh, for exposing people to those scenarios that, you know, are unlikely to happen during the learning process. Well, tell us how you came in to understand and use and be enthusiastic about virtual reality then. Well, do you know what? I'd never touched VR until, um, you know, not in a... I know a lot of people that are into gaming and you know, computer games and tech and things like that. I mean, I, I like tech, but I hadn't. I wasn't an early adopter of, of VR. It was actually a conversation with Paul Spade at RSGB conference after a few beers. I think we were having a pop at Crash Cars and we'd said the ones with the hydraulics in, you know, they, 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 they cover all the windows so people outside can't see and you've got three or four people in the car getting an experience on a flat screen at the front. And we said, wouldn't it be good if those people could be wearing virtual reality goggles and the people outside could see the reactions of the people inside? We hadn't really f- thought it through at that stage in, in the sense of, you know, um, what we were going to show on them. But it was just... Um, I think it was an access point. I think people were feeling frustrated at the time. You know, this is post uh, austerity uh, as much as it was sort of 2015. There was a bit of life starting to come back into into road safety teams and people were just thinking of ways to engage people, you know, ways to get people to stop and have conversations and actually engage in road safety education materials. And VR just seemed to provide a good mechanism, almost more than what you could do within that 360 degree sphere. Um, so that, you know, quite honestly, that's that's pretty much how we came at it in the first instance. So David Crundle then outline the key benefits of virtual reality, VR, and what expectations we should have of using it. The, the, the primary benefits of VR is to put people into that more immersive environment. Uh, it's going to increase engagement it's going to make people more interested in getting into it in the first place and frankly for some people trying to make road safety sexy is going to be very very difficult Um, but if you say come and have a go in a VR headset then all of a sudden you're getting some sort of interest people want to be at the cutting edge of uh, technology and certainly providers who are looking to actually offer training within say fleet industries but also for learner drivers um, are going to have much easier time of it getting young people um, into those headsets and we know for instance the difficulty of getting young drivers into training as soon as they've got their license, because we know they're still dangerous, that post-license training, is it's almost impossible to get people to engage in post-license training when perhaps they need it um, at the most at that particular point when they're at the most vulnerable. But the, the primary importance that I see with VR is creating that more realistic environment. So my, my background for this comes uh, in terms of hazard perception. And I've spent many, many years back to the mid 90s before the hazard perception test was officially a thing. um, We were working with uh, very old clips now that were created by the National Foundation for Education and Research as a pilot uh, set of clips for the Department for Transport. And they were nowadays we'd think of them as terribly grainy things that were displayed on CRT screens, um, big, big chunky monitors, and they weren't 
realistic in any sense. Um, I mean, they, they displayed a, a, a real video, um, but of course you're sat looking at a tiny monitor back in those days uh, with grainy footage. Now we fast forward to the era of VR, and of course VR has been with us for a long time. I remember in the 90s I was based down at the um, uh, Army Personnel Research Establishment and they were investigating VR for military purposes back in those days. But then there was a huge lull because the technology really wasn't good enough and the ambitions of everyone within the VR uh, field were, were, were sort of went fallow for a while but now that VR is back and has been back for for several years it's very exciting to try and put people into these immersive environments for things like hazard perception um, assessment and training the particular reason I think that it's great beyond the engagement is that because we now have that full 360 uh, view that people can uh, can look around in, we can start to do much more with hazard perception. So if you think about the typical hazard perception test, you're looking at a single screen, where are your hazards going to come from? They're going to come from the forward 60 degree arc of visual um, view. And that's it. You can have things coming from the left, things coming from the right, but you're not going to encounter overtaking hazards. You're not going to have blind spot hazards. You're not even able to pull up to a T-junction and check for traffic coming from the left and the right. Now you can do that in 360. I think that's so vitally important because if you're assessing someone on a little single screen, you're funneling their attention into that area, which means that even the worst people at spotting hazards are going to have a better chance than they would have in the real world because their attention is funneled into the area where the hazards are going to appear. Now that we've got uh, VR hazard perception tests, we can get that more realistic scan pattern from people uh, when watching these hazard clips and have a better understanding of who is good at this skill and who is bad at this skill and be better able to train them as well because we're not just training them within this, the dimensions of a small screen monitor, we're now training them to look in places over the full 360 degrees of the driving scene. I want to consider now the, the debate about the value of overly graphic representations in road safety education, because with VR there's the opportunity to put someone right there in a particularly gruesome environment. James Evans, where do you sit on that debate and, and what guides your thinking? I mean, I think the data is pretty conclusive that, uh, you know, it doesn't have the effect that, that, that we might think it does. And, and I think it's that... I don't know what the academic term is, risk compensation, I don't know what it is, but but um, invariably, I think VR's best application is for training in, 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 the, in, the, in the way that David's describing, but also education um, in a way that immersion, so cutting off external stimuli, you know, say you're in a, a classroom and all, all your mates might be rolling their eyes if there was something up on a screen at the front. And of course, when you're all immersed in your headsets, you get to have a very personal experience with what you're seeing. I think that immersion, almost irrespective of whether it's a 360 film or not, is quite uh, powerful for some of the road safety education that goes on. But things like, um, you know, biker down, crash scene management, roadside first aid, all of this sort of stuff, um, where a 360 sphere um, would be very would be very important. I think you can have, I think you can pepper it with production quality, as I as I like to call it. So so realisms and and, and things, but I don't feel that kind of going all out and producing overly graphic stuff 
it does what we think it does. I mean, I it doesn't seem to happen in any, any other industry. I mean, I've, I've, I'm, I've been on the lifeboats for 20 years and, and never do we go around doing sea safety talks and showing pictures of people that have been floating in the water for four weeks. You just don't ever do that. It's not something that happens in, in any other sort of form of education as far as I'm aware. So it's quite, it seems quite unique to road safety. And that might be the proximity of some of the educators to the horrors that that they've witnessed in their, in, in their career. So I'm not being critical about it. Obviously, we did the first one with Leicestershire and that was... You know, uh, that was what we thought at the time was a, was a good thing to do, and and I don't think it's necessarily bad. But as I say, I'm saying think a lot because these are not academic data based um, <laughs> things. This is just just my personal view on it. But I'm sure David's got a, a, a more articulate answer for that. Well, I, I think James uh, has got it right there in terms of the evidence base. Um, I often described it as uh, let's say the results are mixed at best, but generally the the consensus is that if you provide people with something that is too graphic um, people will try and put psychological distance between themselves and uh, and that particular outcome uh, and so they will discount the message uh, because they won't think it will apply uh, to them um, having said that though of course all of these things are based in um, social social psychology and cultural change and these things may well change over the years uh, so the way that people respond uh, to gruesome uh, depictions of accidents that's going to shift as we go forward and films get more violent and violence gets more acceptable and we're constantly seeking uh, the next sort of uh, so, sort of graphic thrill I can remember back in the day when I first saw um, what was a violent film I think that was Robocop ages ago uh, and I thought my goodness that's really pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable um, but nowadays that compared to the sort of stuff that you see now is 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 positively tame so we are going to see cultural changes over the time and uh, I, I think it's a good argument that we should be heading more for um, the educational elements um, there, there could be could be something to be said for the fact that the graphic stuff at least starts a conversation um, but if you just give people the graphic stuff and then you don't follow up with a road safety message and you don't follow up with solid advice then you've got an issue so when you have things like the Northern Ireland uh, campaigns which are short sharp shocks uh, 30 to 45 seconds worth of gruesome things like cars spinning over and crushing children playing a football game um, then you're left in shock after that because the next advert is for um, cat food or something uh, and so there is no time to actually build on that shock and and, and try and use that it, when people are in a malleable state to actually put across a road safety message and provide some learning so I'd like to think that there is maybe some some still some benefit with say what Leicester Fire Service are doing because they put people into that uh, that environment but they are there with them so that they can actually talk with them afterwards uh, and try and reinforce the learning so I think the overall message is yes short sharp gory shocks don't give the results that we'd like them to give um, but there may still be a role now and perhaps in the future where when managed appropriately, a certain level of shock might be beneficial. 
Well, we need to start wrapping things up. So I'm going to ask you both now to reflect on the Project Edward theme for this year. Changing minds, changing behaviour and what you both believe could be winners in bringing about behaviour change. We'll start with you, David Crumble. First of all, if, if I knew what was going to definitely change minds and change behaviour, um, I'd, I'd be a very, very happy person and we, we'd be a lot safer on the roads. Um, it's a very difficult question, but there are lots of good contenders for what might change minds, change behaviour. And we know that there are dozens and dozens of different identified behavioural change techniques. And there are some studies out there that compare the different uh, uh, change techniques to identify which work better than others. Um, No study, no one study compares all of those potential um, behavioural change levers, if you like. Uh, So that means we're still in a very nascent area of the field trying to identify what's the best lever to pull to get those behaviours. For me, I think there are a a couple of really important things. For instance, um, empathy. I think is uh, is one lever that we should be pulling more often. Um, a lot of negative behaviour on the road often comes from a distinction between in groups and out groups, especially when we start talking about the differences between um, uh, car drivers and say vulnerable road users. So the legitimacy of let's say cyclists or horse riders being on the roads is often called into question by some drivers um, because they think they're not paying road tax, they're engaging in a leisure pursuit, I've got to get to work, they're just out riding a horse or riding a bike for fun. Um, And oftentimes car drivers complain about uh, cyclists breaking laws or even that they complain about motorcyclists doing things which are quite legal like filtering. If we can break down that in-group, out-group barrier and induce more empathy, we know that that can have a positive effect. Another thing that I think that would be really good is if, uh, and and this is is old news really, role models. Uh, We need to to really look to create role models for young people to aspire to um, who are safe drivers safe driving just isn't cool and when you think about the culture that we're immersed in um, Top Gear being a a prime example of it Top Gear does not try and um, make safe driving cool it's all about speed, fun, blowing things up and that is basically the culture that we're enmeshed in and I I remember my my son when he was uh, very young and playing with cars and he must have been about two or three and he doesn't go hmm beep, beep, oh and let go let give way to the other traffic no he was running the cars around going smash bang boom and so there is something inherent uh, from a very early age that the fun thing about driving is speed crashing explosions and if we can do anything where we can create positive role models positive uh, things to look to um, then that would be a great thing. The final thing that I'd like to say um, is skill development. I think skill development changes minds. And perhaps the most concrete example of that is the way that hazard perception can theoretically, and there's even some evidence to suggest that it does do this, 
change your willingness to engage in things like mobile phone conversations. So when you decide to engage in a distracting conversation in a vehicle, you're doing so because you think it's safe to do so. You don't change the radio station while driving around a bend one-handed. You change the radio station when you've looked ahead, you think there's nothing there, and that's when you engage in that distracted activity. The problem is, most people are going to underestimate the amount of danger that there is in the world, in the road ahead of them, right at that moment. And that's where engaging in distracting activities such as making or accepting phone calls um, is a problem. If we train people in hazard perception, then it means that they are much more aware of the dangers that are out there. They can look at a road scene and say danger one, danger two, danger three, this could happen, that could happen, something else could happen. Whereas somebody who doesn't have those hazard skills could look down that and see now there's a few parked vehicles but it's empty um, otherwise. So it's a perfectly safe opportunity for me to make even a hands-free phone call which we know are still almost as dangerous as making a handheld phone call. So by increasing the skill we increase people's awareness of those dangers and providing we don't let their confidence run away with them, that's a whole different conversation, the more overconfident they get the more risk-taking they're going to likely to be engaging in, providing we can do that then again we're changing minds through skill and then changing behavior last word then to james evans well it's going to have to be uh, and i think again again because i, I don't have anything as, as polished and robust as 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 david as is the staff work with david a lot and that is the standard <laughs> that we've come to expect but um i, I think Certainly, I think I suppose marketeer is the closest thing you'd align my job role to outside of road safety. And I think once you've got all these robust, uh, data-driven, you know, ideas of what works and, and, and what doesn't work, I think how you communicate that to the public is really, really important. So I think um, understanding, you know, the different platforms that, that 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 people are on, whether they're social media or whether they're you know mainstream channels or, or how people sort of talk in the home, but just the the, the saturation. Um, of, of road safety messaging into the home, into the workplace, out on our roads. You know, I think if this was, uh, it's always mentioned, but if this was jumbo jets crashing, you know, this would be much further up the agenda. You know, the, 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 the state of road safety deserves to be higher up the, the social agenda. Um, you know, when we're looking at the environment and all the things that are going on, you know, in, 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 for social justice. And um, yeah, I, I, I think... Certainly, how that's communicated out, it, it deserves to be uh, much like you're doing with with Project Edward. And you're, you're to be congratulated for your, um, you know, not just for your grit and your staying power doing this for so many years, but developing it. I mean, I was on the website the other day. Your comms are fantastic. You know, the, your your choice of fonts, the way that you put things across, uh, evolve and improve every single year. And you know, inevitably, the amount of people you reach improves. And the more things that we have doing that successfully. The more it will get thought about, the more it'll get, it'll get talked about. Um, and, and, and hopefully in terms of behavior change, certainly for me, the more I hear things and the more it's sort of put into my subconscious, I, I do feel that that pushes me in the right direction. And I, I'm sure that's true for, for, for a lot of people. Well, James Evans, thank you very much. And also many thanks to Professor David Crundle for your wise words on the subject of virtual reality, young drivers and changing behavior. You've been listening to Are We There Yet?, 
the Project Edward 2022 podcast. I hope you found it interesting and useful. Do tell your friends, subscribe, download, and make sure everyone knows about it. We'll be back next week. The guests include Chief Superintendent Andy Cox of Lincolnshire Police and Elizabeth Box of the RAC Foundation. So do join us for that. But for now, from me, James Luckhurst, it's goodbye. Goodbye.